Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 14. We're going to read just a short passage today from Acts 14. And be reminded as you turn there that this is God's holy word. It is inerrant. That means it has no errors in it of any kind. It is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, and it is our only final authority for all that we are supposed to believe and do. And so be addressed by God as you hear these words from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23, starting in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you even for the tough messages. We pray now that you would drive this down into our hearts, that we would expect a glorious gospel of your kingdom and eternal life, but that we would heed to your words that it comes through many tribulations. We pray that your Son would be magnified and that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text to help us to understand and to apply your truth to our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message today is Dead to the World, Alive to the Kingdom. Now, Luke does not record Paul's sermon here. He only summarizes it. And this is typically what happens in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. You get a summary of what the sermons are that are preached. But because of that, I think it's safe to say that what he does summarize is really Paul's big idea. If you got nothing else out of Paul's sermon, which we don't hear, we only have this, this is really his big idea. And so the Scripture says in verse 22 that Paul was saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's it. Those are the few words that Luke wanted his reader to have in mind that Paul had preached. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, Paul had a lot of credibility delivering this message because as we saw just a few days before, he had been stoned by the mob there in Lystra. He was left for dead. They thought he was dead. Paul probably thought he was dead. He was probably surprised when he woke up and had to shake himself off. But what does he do? He returns to that same place and he preaches this particular message. And it adds in verse 22 that what Paul was bringing to them strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them 
to continue in the faith. This is what strengthens them. This is what encourages them. Now, it's not all it was, of course, I'm sure. He's Paul. He probably summarized the gospel with perfect accuracy and power. But how on earth is it possible for this all to transpire in front of them and for this summary to strengthen them? Well, the secret of it forms our big idea today, and it is this, that tribulations are God's way of making us dead to the world and alive to the kingdom. So let me say that again, because if you get lost at any point, you could just come back to this. This is the doctrine, this is the truth that we are to take out of this passage, that tribulations are God's way of making us dead to the world and alive to the kingdom. And we'll see this in three ways. You could jot this down or not, but just very simply, three G words, guarantee, gateway, and graduation. We'll see first that tribulations are a guarantee for the Christian. Second, we'll see that tribulations are a gateway into the kingdom. And third, that tribulations are a graduation from worldliness. Let's look at that first point. First, that tribulations are a guarantee for the Christian, all Christians. You see that in verse 22. He says the word must. You see that? And so tribulation is a must. Now, let me clear the air here a little bit about what that's not saying. It's not saying that this is works righteousness. So if I suffer in this way, then I'll be saved. No, it's not a matter of suffering to earn God's favor. It's not a way of getting saved by Jesus at all. But it is guaranteed that for those who are saved, for those who Jesus does bring near to him, that in this world you will have tribulation. That's the way Jesus says it in John 16.33. You will. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the guarantee. And I think one of our temptations is to water all of this down, and one of the easiest ways to water it down is to say, well, I see all that in the text, and I know other passages that talk about it, and I know examples in church history where it's talked about, and we draw great strength and encouragement from that, but isn't this just for Paul? Isn't this just for the super-Christians, the saints with a capital S, the apostles, the missionaries, the great heroes of the faith? But Paul says here in verse 22, very specifically, he doesn't say, I, Paul, the super saint, but we, we must enter in this way. Tribulations aren't just the violence against Christians. Uh, tribulation isn't simply the vile speech against Christians, but tribulation is also the press release. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 19. It says that Jews came, and then further down, having persuaded the crowds. It was not normal and natural. The crowds were gaining from what they said. In fact, if you look back in the text, the crowds were worshiping it. They got the wrong idea altogether, and Paul had to correct them. But Jews came and persuaded the crowds. You know, there was a talk given by Paul Washer over a decade ago now, and you can still find it on YouTube, and he said a very profound thing. He said, you know, Christians, in a very short amount of time, you're not going to be persecuted for being a Christian. 
you're not going to be persecuted for the gospel. Now, that will be the real reason you're persecuted, and God will know that. But that won't be the reason on the social media feed. That won't be the press release. Look at Jesus. Look at the apostles. Look at the martyrs throughout church history. The devil has no interest in making you a martyr or making you a spiritual hero. Now, he can't wait to have you stopped. He can't wait to have you in pain. He can't wait to have you intimidated. He can't wait to have you killed. But he will not have a mob make a saint out of you and me, but a scandal. When Christians are persecuted, the headline will not read, Sufferer. It will not read, Saint. It will not read, Dedicated to Christ. It will read, Sedition. Disturber of the peace. Child abuser. Terrorist. This is what came against Jesus and the apostles. You spoke against the temple. This man speaks against Moses. This man is leading people away. And so on and so on and so forth. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that... Well, let me read it wrong first. Keep your conduct honorable in the presence of the Gentiles because if you do well enough, maybe you'll appease them. Maybe they won't pick on you. That's not what it says. He says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, this assumes that the Christian will still be lied about in spite of not being guilty of what's on persecution's press release. Churches are filled today with those who would tell us that we always need to accommodate, that the problem is always and only ever that we've not given up enough biblical convictions, that we need to give just another inch and just another inch, and then maybe the world will back off but the Bible has a far, far different explanation. In John 17, 14, Jesus says that the world has hated them, namely hated the disciples, because they are not of the world. Now, you can be of the world, but that's not what we're called to. And so you see that tribulations are a guarantee for the Christian. Well, secondly, tribulations are a gateway into the kingdom. And again, when we speak of this, we're not saying a gateway of earning salvation. That's not the idea here. Not that kind of gateway, but rather a normal, expected pathway. And it is this that Paul has in mind in this passage when he uses words like through and enter. This is the way in. It's what Jesus means in Matthew 7:14 when he speaks of the narrow way. He's not speaking of a way of making God love us. He's not speaking of a way to working and squeezing our way into salvation. But on the other hand, redeemed people in this world have only one narrow path to fit through. As all of this world's hatred of Jesus presses in on us, into that shape of a narrow way. Now, a couple of other things tribulation is not. Tribulation is not merely suffering. It is suffering. 
God ordains general suffering for us too, and He does so for much the same reason. He's sanctifying us. He's making us holy. He's teaching us to rely on Him as our own natural resources fail us, as our own efforts are not enough for the task. And so that is suffering. But tribulation is a very specific kind of suffering. It's not merely sickness. It's not merely those other things that God uses to toughen us up or to break our allegiance from this world. But persecution is that pain administered by persons. Now, we're not talking about the administration of care to your soul in the same way as a physician would administer care to the body. And when he does so, it's a kind of tough love, nor the kind that parents administer a kind of tough love to children. No, these are people, but they're the people that Paul calls elsewhere enemies of the cross of Christ in Philippians 3. These are people who mean harm to your soul. But where's God in all that? Well, remember in Genesis 50, 20. Remember what Joseph said to the brothers who had sold him into slavery, who had left him for dead, that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God is behind all of this. God has a good intention. God has a wise and loving intention to work his sanctification through the instruments of the world's hateful and harmful intentions. Now, that's a lot to get our minds wrapped around and our hearts wrapped around, that God is actually using the hurtful and harmful intentions of the enemies of Christ, and He's accomplishing around them and through them a good and perfect intention through that suffering. And so in this way, the Lord tests the righteous in Psalm 11.5. And in that psalm, it says that the wicked bend their bow. And who's ultimately pulling it back? Who is controlling the very rotation of the arrow and the, and the bullseye and the wind patterns and everything else? It is God who has a perfect sanctifying effect in it. Now, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? What do I mean by a gateway into the kingdom? Well, it's not just a path. It's also a sight. If all God was using trials and tribulations for was merely our pain, merely to press us down, well, then we might be limping our way to heaven for bare relief. There may be nothing good about it for all we know, but at least it would be better than this place, we might think. But God does not leave us to being dead to this world alone. There's another half of this that's implied. God would raise our sight to the kingdom. And so what we're saying here is that persecution is not just a path into the kingdom, but it forms a sight into the kingdom. Salvation is described in this way, first being saved. In John 3.3, 3, seeing into the kingdom is a description that Jesus uses for being born again. The kingdom is compared to a wedding feast in Matthew 22 too. The kingdom is described as filled with righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit in Romans 14, 17. And so by gate here, by a way of entry, we don't just mean a way to get through, but we mean a way to see through. 
And right there, if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, and I take it that a lot of people have read that. It's one of the second leading bestseller after the Bible in the past few centuries. But this is something that Bunyan's Christian, the pilgrim, needed to learn in that great story that Satan shoots his fiercest darts at the new believer at a place that Bunyan in that story called the Wicket Gate, that place of entry on the path to heaven. And you can't fit onto that narrow way if your soul is saturated with the treasures of this world, if your soul is still holding out that maybe they will like me, maybe if I just appease and give up this and give up that and be a little quiet about my faith, maybe then I can live in peace here. And so we have to be made fit by the pressing in of persecution. And that brings us to our third point. Persecution is, and tribulation is not simply a guarantee. It's not simply a gateway. But thirdly, it is a graduation from worldliness. Now, I, I began with that picture maybe somewhat unsuccessfully. I guess if medicine tastes good today, I, I didn't know that. But, uh, <laughs> but I began with that picture with the children and medicine, which is sour, to rid us of sickness, which is far worse. But worldliness is the most persistent sickness of all. It is a fever of the flesh that won't just break on its own. Only a stronger therapy from another world will break us of it. Tribulation is God's spiritual therapy. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying he's dead to the world, but it had to happen in a violent way. And this is at the tail end of a letter where Paul was going up against the people he really had in mind by those enemies of the cross. People that wanted to make much of themselves and to draw some recruits unto them to not go with the gospel, but to go with some easier way of your own effort. And Paul was basically saying, I'm not going to be a people pleaser like them. I am not going to be a man pleaser like them. Because, and here's his reason, he's dead to the world. He's crucified to it. Graduating from worldliness does not mean forsaking duties in the world. Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, right there, he doesn't mean that you keep them from sickness, that you keep them from physical death. He doesn't tell us that. In this world, you will have tribulation, but God is honoring that prayer of Jesus by protecting us where it matters most, protecting our souls, keeping us in our inheritance, as 1 Peter 1 says, in heaven, holding on to that for us. And so God has us left in the world on purpose. We have a mission here. And so after Paul was left for dead and rose to his feet again to preach, he didn't stop there. The verse continues that he had made many disciples in verse 21 that they had appointed elders for them in every church in verse 23. They fasted and prayed for those same churches. And by the way, this isn't the only time this happens to Paul. Paul was getting a beating in a lot of places. 
It was kind of his job description. So it's not just like there's this one-time thing and there was this fruit of his ministry before that. He's always being persecuted and he's always getting back to it. But why is Paul so busy? I mean, didn't he have a good enough reason to say, well, after this seventh time I've gotten this beating, maybe now I'll take my own advice and live a quiet and peaceful life. You know, he uses that language elsewhere in 1 Timothy. But what does he mean by that? What does he mean that we would live a quiet and peaceful life? He could have easily not gotten back onto that field after he had gotten up thinking he was dead. You know, you should never, I was told, so I was told in seminary, you should only use maybe one or two movie illustrations per year because a lot of people haven't seen them. And especially you're a guy, you're probably going to use sports analogies and, mo- and uh, war analogies and especially war analogies. So you keep those limited one or two. But every once in a while, there's a really good one. Even if you haven't seen it, you got to see it because it's that good of a metaphor. Well, over a decade ago, there was an excellent miniseries on HBO called Band of Brothers. And I'm sure a lot of people have at least heard it. And the first one, the first miniseries, was the um, European theater of World War II. And in one of the episodes, and it told this story of this regiment that had gone all the way from D-Day, and they followed them all the way. I don't know if they got all the way to Berlin, but that was the idea of the miniseries. And in one particular episode, there was this one private, Private Blythe who confessed that he was afraid. He confessed this to his commanding officer, Spires. And he said that basically on D-Day, once all the firing had stopped, that he got down in a bunker and stayed there, and he couldn't even move. And even though he followed them along, moving east through Europe, this was kind of what he did. He kept hiding, and he couldn't bring himself to march out there on the field. But that officer told him, He said, you hid in that ditch because you still think you have hope. But Blythe, the only hope that you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier was supposed to function. And that, in a nutshell, is what Paul knew. Paul was dead to the world. He wasn't just physically dead, and then he got up, And then he said, oh, good, now I can be alive to the world again. He was dead to this world's system. He was dead to the world's applause. He was dead to anything the world could offer him to compromise the gospel. And that's what all Christians have to be, not just super apostles or super saints like Paul. But there may be a distaste for us as we come across passages like this. We might hear this that... To be a Christian is to have trials and tribulation. And we might think, well, if that's the case, then what you're saying is that whatever Christians have not personally been subject to tribulation, well, then they must not be a real Christian. And that seems like a very uncharitable conclusion. And that's true. That would be an uncharitable conclusion. But that's not quite the takeaway from this passage. Because you see, all Christians will go through different trials, different tribulations, will live in different errors. And oftentimes, the correct response is simply thanksgiving to God that we have the freedoms that we have and we're not persecuted like others are in the world. 
But all Christians, to some extent, must be persecuted. It doesn't come in the same way for all. It does not last for the same duration as all. It's not the same intensity for all. But all must be broken from our allegiance to this world. And so as we apply this to our lives in five different ways, the first application is simply that we have to accept this. This truth is for our instruction. This passage is for our instruction. All Christians at all stages of their walk with Christ need to hear this truth about tribulation. This needs to not be the fine print on the brochure of the kingdom. We talked a little bit about evangelism this morning. We need, when we're sharing the gospel with anyone we're sharing the gospel with, we need to not make our King Jesus out to be guilty of false advertising. When Jesus himself has been absolutely crystal clear. He says in Luke 21, 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I wonder how many church You know, those billboards, those placards in the front, have that on the front. You will be hated by all. If you come here with us, just know that you will be hated by all for Christ's name's sake. But we need this word because our natural default is to be loved by all, or at least a tolerable amount of all. At least the people that I like, I'd like them to like me. But if I could put it in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also had some credibility to speak on this as he was persecuted by the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer famously wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's very biblical language. In fact, nobody says it more extremely than Jesus himself. To become a Christian is to die to earthly reputation. We don't just need to slip out of our comfort zone. We need to crucify our comfort. That's the message of Paul that so strengthened these disciples. Our second application is to get used to this truth, to not simply hear it, but to get used to it. We can't prepare for suffering or prepare for tribulation if we will not so much as stand to hear the truth about tribulation. And the American church has sadly far outdone Judah of old in the Bible in accumulating ear-tickling false prophets. But with that destruction that was coming to the southern kingdom of Judah back in the Old Testament, they accumulated false teachers. That's what the whole book of Jeremiah is about. He's up against all these ear-tickling, smooth-sounding false teachers. And God says through him in Jeremiah 6.14, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Spiritual healing of souls comes through telling the truth about difficult realities, tough truths. And here the American church is, frankly, in need of repentance. Pastors are in need of repenting for failing to prepare our congregations. And yes, all of us, wherever we've been guilty of it, church members ought to also repent wherever we have demanded pleasant speech over this plain speech. Third application for us, beware. 
or to put it in Bible language, do not be surprised. Peter says that, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. God is testing you. But here, don't be surprised by the persecution of the mob. Don't be carried away by the press release of the mob. It says again that Jews came having persuaded the crowds. This is an aspect of preparing for tribulation. Don't be so quick to believe the world and the accommodating church about what needs to compromise. Well, it must be we're in trouble again, and we do things wrong. We act like jerks. We can do things and get our gospel off the mark, and we can be offensive where we're not called to be instead of the cross, which is offensive and must be offensive. But don't be so quick to believe the world about your brothers and sisters. Fourthly, after wrestling with this truth, somebody may ask, well, isn't there any way to avoid it? I mean, after all, if we all face different trials and tribulations, isn't there any way to avoid all of these tribulations and all this venom from the world? And the answer is yes. You can avoid tribulation. You can have total peace as the world gives peace, and you can have it in an instant. You can sell out Jesus. You can compromise. You can bend the knee to the world's demands. You can make a truce with tribulation. And you can deceive yourself into thinking that you can have this peace in one hand and hold on to Jesus with the other. But it is all a soft and easy lie. And we need to hear this truth. And so finally, take heart, because the same gospel where Jesus Christ substitutes for you, and he obeys the law for you, and he takes the penalty for you, and God saves you completely by his grace, and that's what your promise, or that's what your hope is in, is his promise. That gospel purchases for you this sanctification. You can count on God that it will work. You can believe that God is the one that is behind all such things, all trials, all bad intentions of the enemy, pulling the enemy's strings. And God's doing it for his purposes and his molding of us. And so we can be absolutely confident that his image is being formed in us. And finally, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the potter and we are the clay and that even history's worst Enemies of the cross are nothing but clay in your hands. Lord, help us to trust you as we look at tribulation. Help us to not shrink back. Help us to rely on you and the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And write this word upon our hearts and make them soft and ready to hear 
the difficult truths which are medicine to our soul. We thank you for this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. I do want to read something first for that. And then I'll have the elders come forward. But to all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and who have affirmed true faith in Christ, the promise of Jesus is sure. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. John 6, 54 and 55. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So while remembering the bread and wine, these sacred elements nevertheless become so united to the reality they signify that we do not doubt but joyfully believe that we receive in this meal by the Spirit through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now for all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, This holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you do not confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, we admonish you to abstain. But all who repent and believe are invited to this sacred meal, not because you are worthy in yourself, but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it is given to us because of our weakness and because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the word has promised us in God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. And so come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, eight. Let me pray over the elements and then I'll have the elders come up. Father, we thank you for the table of your son. We thank you that he is spiritually administering this to us as emblems, as symbols of his work, his body and his blood. We pray, Lord, that you would grant repentance to any who do not believe who ought to consider these things and to not take in superstition. But we do also pray that you would create faith and increase the faith of those that you have made to believe. So bless these elements to increase our faith, cause us to reflect and bring conviction where that is needed. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.